Nobody knows for sure if the Brontosaurus is a real dinosaur. For a genuine science, a field in which real doctors get their not-printed-from-the-internet PhDs, paleontology has kind of a shady past. For evidence, you need look no further than the question of whether the Brontosaurus ever existed. Sometimes, most of the time really, you don't find complete skeletons. You find a little bit over here and a little bit over there, then you piece everything together like a giant macabre jigsaw puzzle. And if your name and reputation was riding on your ability to put together jigsaw puzzles, putting the same puzzle together and then claiming it was a totally different puzzle might not be entirely beneath you. Turns out there was a lot of grandstanding and ego involved in the early days of paleontology, not to mention politics and personal rivalries, with a lot of flash and showmanship not unworthy of someone like P.T. Barnum. And Brontosaurus, or the Noble Thunder Lizard if you're nasty, may have been a mistake or even an outright hoax in what is known as the Bone Wars of the late 1800s. Or maybe it was real, but they just put the wrong head on the skeleton? Its validity is still hotly contested to this day. I bring it up because it's a good example of a little phenomenon I like to call it's really hard to know stuff. I mean know it for sure. Especially when the stuff you're trying to know happened a really long time ago. Today's film is, sadly, not about dinosaurs, but it did happen a long time ago. It's about a mutiny on a British naval vessel, a real event that actually took place on April 28, 1789. We even know the date. That should be a pretty straightforward story to tell, but from almost the very beginning nobody could agree on exactly what happened or why. The truth was obscured by a maelstrom of egos, politics, and personal rivalries the conditions on the ship, the circumstances of the mutiny, and the fate of the escaped mutineers are facts relayed down through the ages by a host of unreliable narrators. Facts contested at every turn because the names and reputations, and in some cases the lives of the people involved, were riding on what version of the story the public believed. As of today, historians have pieced most of the brontosaurus bones together, so we think we know largely how things went down. But it's still open for interpretation, and a hundred years from now, we might come to different conclusions. You could probably rash him on this baby and get a pretty gripping movie that examines everybody's viewpoints and actions, but this adaptation is from 1935 Hollywood. Talk about flash and showmanship. We wanted big sexy heroes and glowering, indefatigable villains and a very nice young man to be the voice of reason in an uncertain world. And verifiable facts on the ground were extremely subordinate to the spinning of a good yarn. This isn't the first time this story was told without getting all of the finer points quite right, or in some cases even the broader points, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. But it wrecked house at the Oscars that year and cemented this version of events in the public consciousness for most of the following century, regardless of whether they put the right head on its skeleton. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So come sweep the seas for England with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we wrap up our much-beleaguered and long-suffering series on naval warfare and discuss Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, and Franchot Tone in director Frank Lloyd's 1935 maritime epic, Mutiny on the Bounty. Mutiny on the Bounty. 
Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And today we are here to talk about an old black and white film, which means Liam. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's really good. It's Mutiny on the Bounty, and it is the, I think this, this might be what, the second version of this film maybe there might be an old silent one there might this be is an- the third of the film about this topic but the second adaptation of the book and probably the most famous and like most enduring i guess you'd say of the adaptations i mean the brando one's pretty famous we'll get into all that we will but katie's here to start us off with the mission briefing Well, it went on to get eight Academy Award nominations and win Best Picture while also breaking box office records. Critics were initially suspicious of how well Mutiny on the Bounty would perform due to its overlong runtime of two hours and 12 minutes. Something to chuckle at now, considering James Cameron's career. But after it premiered, both the reviews and audiences raved at the marvelous acting, the stunning cinematography and special effects, and particularly the adaptation of the subject matter. While the basic events shown in The Mutiny on the Bounty did in fact take place in the late 1700s, the film is based on the 1932 novel trilogy of the same name by Charles Nordhoff and James Norman Hall. The book took some pretty serious detours from reality in their descriptions of Captain Bly, but Charles Lawton's performance cemented that version of Bly into how most people remember the real man. This was also the first film to have three nominations for Best Actor in the same movie with Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, and Franchot Tone, prompting the Academy to create a whole new category of Best Supporting Actor the following year. So I think Lawton is inspired with this role. He owns every scene that he is in. But Clark Gable is also fantastic. And Tone's final speech at the end is... Shakespearean. Gangbusters. So let's talk about performances before we get into anything else. How did you two feel about these? And can you pick a favorite of the three men? Liam, that's all you. So there's a reason why his monologue at the end is so good. Franchot Tone uh, was a stage actor to start. He was one of the founding members of the group theater in New York, which if you or anybody listening at home isn't familiar with, the group theater was one of the most influential acting troops in the 20th century American stage. This was the group like Lee Strasberg and... Clifford Odets, it was a group of directors, actors, and writers who came together based really, they, they were blown away by the, the Russian theater that they had seen come visiting, which were all working off of the teachings of Stanislavski. And they took that and sort of ran with it and eventually created the method, the Lee Strasberg method. That's where this really came out of. And Franchot Tone was one of the founding members of it, he left to go to Hollywood and make movies. 
but until the group dissolved after like 10 years, he, uh, he was always sending portions of his paycheck back to finance their plays. I'm not sure if this is the first thing I saw him in. It might've been lives of a Bengal Lancer, which I hope we get to do one day. Although it has some now very problematic elements in it, uh, but as, the, as films from this era tend to have, they tend to do people have to go in disguise someplace to infiltrate a thing. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, and yep. it's, it's not a good look today, <laughs> but he's always just very engaging. He's always very jovial. And you know, when he's, when he's like pranking the other stuffed shirt midshipmen, you know, it's, it's a, he always just has like that kind of twinkle in his eye, you know, he's very, very resilient kind of characters that he would typically play. I think he also did a few film noirs as well. And later on in his career started playing villains to a, to reasonably good effect. But this was obviously one of the things that really put him on the map. He never got to a list status, but he was a, he was a a very huge B list leading man. So yeah, I loved him in this. But I got to go Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton is just, he's so good. He's so good. And I know that this depiction of Bly is not the most nuanced. Or accurate. Or necessarily even accurate. But his performance adds a lot of nuance where I think the writing doesn't have it. So I think of, of all of the performances in this, his is the one that really elevates the material as opposed to playing the material as written. Yeah. So that's my, my take on that. And Clark Gable is Clark Gable, and it's great seeing Clark Gable be Clark Gable. And he had to shave his mustache for this, which he was not happy about. Well. Among other things he wasn't happy about. <laughs> like, he didn't like having to frolic in the waves with French Tone shirtless. I think his problems are more with uh, Charles Lawton, but we'll get there. <laughs> this was almost my first time with all these actors i've seen gone with the wind so i've seen clark gable at least once before but it's been a really long time so this might as well have been my first experience with him very different performances from the main three actors i thought i think i, I agree i now that you're explaining the theater background of french Tone, i think that sticks out i think again i found his last speech monologue to be very shakespearean and just delivered with a level of I don't know, panache and gravitas that was a little bravado. Yeah, just clearly yeah. really and and he's also speaking to, you know, admirals and and authority figures, so he's trying to be really respectful but also stand up for himself and so there's a lot of layers there and I think he really delivers on that. I found Clark Gable to be great and very attractive. I mean, you can see why he was a heartthrob and the love story that they add to this like makes sense. And some of that is based in reality, at least in in principle. And so it's it's kind of nice to see that there are some moments that are it's not like they age poorly, but they they more set the film in the 30s, like when he's below deck and finally is has decided to take over the ship and he kind of just waves his fist at Bly and he's like mm-hmm. <laughs> now you've given your last command on this ship we'll be men again if we hang for it shaking angry fist bloody faces he's just shaking his fist and I'm like you're kind of feel like a cartoon character but again that might be because a lot of my experience with Clark Gable is of like Bugs Bunny caricatures of him with the ears and the mustache. Well, Bugs Bunny entire thing is his entire thing was based on Clark Gable. So there you go. But Clark Gable was the king of Hollywood. That was his, mm-hmm. that was yeah. his name, which was actually, <laughs> he got dubbed that for another best picture winner from the same decade. 
it happened one night. There's a scene that is kind of where he got his nickname. But really, I'm trying to think if there's just off the top of my head, the next closest thing I can think of is Russell Crowe, where in the 90s to the early 2000s, every single movie that Russell Crowe was in at least got nominated for Best Picture if it didn't win. Clark Gable was in three Best Picture winners within probably six years. Yeah. If not fewer, like he was on a hot streak, hot streak. That's funny because I was actually going to ask you guys, who do you think is the Clark Gable of this era? Let's say the last 30 years. And so it sounds like Russell Crowe's up there. Well, acting, acting wise, I would say. Not acting wise. I'm, I'm saying more King of Hollywood, like that type of. I would say George Clooney is probably the closest. Okay. Robert De Niro. I was thinking Brad Pitt. I would say more recently is Ryan Gosling. I don't think he has that. Well, and again, movie stars today don't exist the way that they existed in the 1930s. Yeah. Clark true. Gable literally murdered someone with his car. And they were like, it's fine. It's Clark Gable. Who cares? And the studio hushed it up. But so did, uh, I want to say Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. Yes. Yes. And he's not the only one. And Ted Kennedy. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we'll spar about this a little bit throughout this episode, Liam, because if there's one thing that... So, we delayed this recording by a week, and so, once again, while I was not planning on watching all three versions of this film, I ended up with an extra (laughs) week, and so I was like, meh, why not? I'm down to watch Marlon Brando. I've got time on my hands. I mean, you don't have to twist my arm to watch a Marlon Brando movie I've never seen, and then a Anthony Hopkins movie that I haven't seen since I was a kid. Yeah. So, I watched the other two versions... And while I won't be doing a lot of lengthy comparisons between the three films, the one thing I can say is the Bly performances are very different. And seeing the way they wrote the role for Anthony Hopkins and seeing his performance really made Lawton stick out more to me as very one-dimensional. And I think it's more the fault of the writing than his performance. Like, I agree he gives a great performance, but it's like, He is walking around with a frown on his face the whole time, and he cannot fucking wait to flog people, and there almost is no break in showing some humanity from him, other than when they're on the dinghy, and then he's like in charge of 12 people, and they're in dire straits, etc. Then you see his humanity a little bit, and again, I think he delivered on what he was being asked to do by the screenwriters. When I think about the three films, they're all great in their own way. And if you want to take the time to watch all of them, they're definitely worth your time. It was interesting to see Anthony Hopkins play Bly a little different and the events kind of are still the same. But I thought that he added more nuance. But again, that may have just been in the writing. It's the writing and I'm sure to a certain extent, the acting style at the time. Right. Yeah, that's kind of the big thing with Lawton. Yeah, Lawton got his start in like, silent films or just when Hollywood was learning to talk. Mm-hmm. So a mm-hmm. lot of it is still that very, very pronounced. Same thing with Clark Gable. Like these guys are all just kind of learning on the fly. That's why you probably see again, that bit of difference between their acting and the acting you see from French tone. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think the example I brought up of Gable kind of shaking his fist, mm-hmm. if you were to take that scene and act it out the same way, but remove the voice and have a what a dialogue card, that totally makes sense. So like played as a silent scene, I could see that acting being spot on. In that scene, in a talkie, it comes off a little 
overly dramatic or just kind of stilted but again we've talked about this before films from this decade are in a transitional period and you got to kind of cut him some slack for that which i certainly do so but it's also insane when you watch something like this and then you watch his performance in gone with the wind from literally four Mm. years later right which is very naturalistic and comparatively like way more naturalistic Mm. And, and I'm sure we've talked about this on, on the show before, but just the learning curve that these guys were flying on, it was insane. Like the amount of progress that they made, not only in the filmmaking style and figuring out sound, but also the acting for the screen that they were now having to do. They picked up the, the tricks of the trade really fast. So I had a childhood crush on Clark Gable, but I think Charles Lawton is my favorite in this because... Like you said, Liam, I think he does give some nuance to it and he doesn't get a whole lot of opportunity, but especially in those opening scenes, which kind of reminded me, honestly, of uh, the Kane mutiny. Mm. Sometimes I would not be shocked if Bogart had seen this a couple of times, at least, because when Bly is talking to Fletcher, he tells him, I like having a gentleman as my subordinate. Being a self-made man makes me feel better. <laughs> it was like, oh, well, okay. that was almost Cagney from Mr. Roberts. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yes, thank you. These Ms. fingerprints are in both performances because they actually name drop Bly in the Kane Mutiny as a comparison. Oh, yeah. And James Cagney is in this movie. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he because him and Frank Lloyd, the director, were friends. And where they filmed this, I think, in the Mediterranean, like Cagney what? was vacationing there or something. Catalina Island is off the coast of Los Angeles. I, we we just went there oh, last okay. uh, last fall. It sounds kind of Mediterranean. My apologies. You guys don't know. You're all the way over there. I get it. Yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> we don't know. Catalina is uh, it's part of the Channel Islands off the coast of L.A. Oh, OK. Which interestingly are their own formation and they did not break off from the continent, uh, geologically speaking. Oh, interesting. And a couple of fun facts about Catalina. They've been filming a lot of films there since the 20s. There is a whole herd of bison that they brought there for some old Western. That are now like, it's kind of funny because they're invasive, like they were brought there by humans, but now they're these protected bison that are there. Uh, We had to go around them on trails several times. Like one time there was a bull just sleeping in the middle of a trail and we're like, well, I got to stay like a hundred feet away from them and they'll kill you. And there's also a special Channel Islands fox that is like the size of a cat. It's really tiny and it is, it only lives on those three islands. So that's Catalina. They filmed this in Tahiti on location and in Catalina for most of the ship stuff. And then a lot of the stuff they had to do with buildings and whatever that was all done in Catalina. Right. So that must have it must have been there because Cagney was vacationing Mm -hmm. and was like, hey, give me a part in your movie, buddy. He's like, I need some money. (laughs) And so he's like just a background extra. That's hilarious. Yeah, it says he's clearly visible in the beginning of the movie. I watched it twice. I could not pick out James Cagney. I think he's one of the guys when they are initially loading up the boat. Or, excuse me, loading up the ship. <laughs> oh, my. We're going to get letters. <laughs> to, to, to sail away. So, yeah, so Cagney was in this, which is delightful. But I think Lawton is doing his best to give little hints and reasons but it never overcomes the seemingly almost innate 
cruelty. Yeah, the I like flogging people character of characteristic of him. There's there's a couple of scenes. There's there's the yeah, a couple of the dinner scenes where he's like actually jovial. Yes, trying to hand people cheese. Yeah, the doctor's spinning his bullshit, and he's just like, you know. <laughs> Mr. Sergeant, you would have made an excellent historian. You have a profound contempt for facts. That line was hilarious and very charming. And I'm like, oh, there's the Bly that we that we know and love. That's the Bly who can, like, you know, get in there and mix it up with the crew. Right. And he's offering, the, that cheese offering was just like, each person that he offered it to was a little bit different. And he was a little bit more crestfallen and then a little bit more angry and just. Right. That is true. And the reasons are different, too. I like how the surgeon's like, oh, it's bad for my innards. And everyone else is just like, it's bad for my innards. I don't <laughs> want he's that. drinking himself to death literally the entire oh, time. Literally, right? <laughs> the surgeon's oh fucking great. And his name is Bacchus. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was one of my favorite scenes when he's getting loaded onto the ship with the cargo and he's drinking oh and his peg leg is just sticking out and i'm like this character is fucking outlandish dude it's hilarious <laughs> that and then you proceed to see him every time he's administering medicine he's like here's some booze for you here's some booze for you there's nothing more powerful than brandy and the booze for me and some booze oh for me God. and did i ever tell you how i lost my leg like oh god and he tells yes. that story twice and it's two different stories i think like, he tells it like yes. three different times <laughs> yeah. it's 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 like the joker's scars hey, did you ever hear how i lost my leg no no but we will well I left my leg with John Paul Jones back in 78. Right. You get, a new, you get a new story every time. When I read his name as Dudley Diggs, I was like, this feels like a name that Liam has just thrown around before. But were you familiar with him, Liam? No, not terrible. Okay. Like, I've seen him in other stuff, but it's not. He's, he's not one of my go-to guys. Okay. Okay. He was great. So, historically, I think that's one of the things that I found the most interesting. So, I, I have been reading uh, a book by Australian author Peter Fitzsimmons called Mutiny on the Bounty, a saga of sex, sedition, mayhem, and mutiny, and survival against extraordinary odds. Oh, my. That's quite a title. That's a lot of ands. It is. I, I was like, too many ands. <laughs> but they're Australian. Maybe they have different grammar rules. Not gonna judge. So... The thing about Tahiti is it's kind of placed midway between the west coast of the U.S. and New Zealand and Australia. And Bly was eventually appointed governor of, I think, New South Wales in Australia. Yep, exactly. And there is a museum slash library there that collects you know, old manuscripts and historical items and all that. And Bly's family donated all of his notebooks and historical paraphernalia, essentially, to this museum. And so Peter Fitzsimmons was looking for a new book to write, heard about this story, was able to get a bunch of original research from them that includes some unpublished manuscripts from Bly and his diaries and all that kind of thing. This is a new book. Like, it's recent? 2018. Oh, okay. Yeah, totally recent. So it's this very well-told creative historical nonfiction that laces together all of the accurate historical data that he was able to pull to tell what, quote-unquote, really happened. And so the character of Bly that you get from there, which is from both the appendix created by Fletcher Christian's brother after his death, and Bly's journals and other concurrent 
information of that time period to create this nonfiction reimagining of this is what actually happened as best we can figure out these days. And it is fascinating because it portrays Bly as an insanely competent sailor. Which, by all accounts, he was. That is the one thing that is not disputed. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he became an admiral. Like, despite all of the bad shit that went down, right. like, he did become an admiral in, in his Royal Majesty's Navy and was incredibly well thought of. And he really did sail a tiny sailboat with whatever, 12 people, like 3,500 miles with only 10 days worth of food and water, right? Like, that's pretty accurate. Yep, he did. That actually happened. So, the thing that you get out of the book is that this man is not a people person. <laughs> But very much a logistics person. He flogged men less than was typical. There was no keel hauling. None of these men who were on this ship were press ganged. All of them were volunteers. And almost all of them had uh, sailed before as well. So he was very competent at logistics, but just didn't really get the men. And he was also pretty close friends. With Fletcher Christian, there was not that animosity up until a certain point. If I can just back up a couple of points Katie made, we had two of our volunteer researchers on the podcast come through for this one. Peter, our friend from Down Under, who seemed very excited to write about especially Captain Bly and a timeline of his life and career and, and the end of it in Australia, since he seems to be pretty well known there. And Rich Stevens, our returning champion, I already did this in our Facebook group, but I must apologize profusely to Richard and anyone else who's ever done research because he came through on Dust Boat and did research for us when someone else had to drop out. And I totally forgot that he did that and I did not include it in the episode. Uh, it is in our surplus ordinance. So again, Richard, I owe you some beers and thank you for coming through again on this one. But um, yeah, they talk a little bit about the real history. And of course, we'll put this all in our surplus ordinance. But it does seem to back up that Captain Bly is a composite of several kind of famous British naval sea captains of that era, especially the enthusiasm with which he is dishing out physical punishment on people. Both the trivia on IMDb and Rich and Peter's research kind of confirm this point that that wasn't really him. They sort of took all the worst qualities of famous captains from the time and imbued them into this one character. The flogging of the dead man, for example, uh, was not Bly. Keel hauling, interestingly, which could be done either from bow to stern, which would be the worst because that's the length of the ship as opposed to the width of the ship, was Ugh. a practice that the British Navy stopped doing in 1720. So keel hauling would not have been happening by this time. And so clearly it didn't. It's also a capital punishment. It is also something that most sailors did not survive from. Also, let's not forget that the scene in the film, the guy getting keel hauled, which is again, like almost like being executed is because he asked for water. <laughs> like literally yeah. that's what he was getting punished for. I was like, God damn, dude, <laughs> I am dying of thirst right now. And you're dead. No, he wanted to wash off his knees because he was getting so much sand like pressed into his flesh that he's ground yeah, into, into yeah. him while he's cleaning the deck and he got up to get some water and that's what he was essentially killed for. I was like, wow. Also, one of the worst, 
moments of special effects in the movie if i may say so like it's really <laughs> fast it's like half a second it looks like they're dragging a plastic skeleton with like sailor clothes it on does. i'm like what it the does. hell are you guys doing i don't know it's just like that's probably because that's what it was right <laughs> that's probably pretty shocking for audiences at the time sure right yeah the special effects in this are fantastic for the time you don't expect to see that being done on screen this was just before the Hayes code really kicked in mm, that sounds about right yeah i can't remember the exact dates on the Hayes code off the top of my head right now but 36 or 39 kind of makes sense for the Hayes code yeah there's like a little bit too much island flesh for a code movie oh yeah yeah there's some side boob in this yep and lots of um coming out of the water there's some side boob there's some interracial love that yeah there's a baby that is mentioned in one of the reviews i think it was the variety one of the era where it talked about polynesian women by some folks are considered white but that probably won't be viewed by all of the audience or something along those lines and i was like oh damn just laying it out there i guess jesus hey that's that's the times someone was doing some censorship i don't know if it was the studio but i remember reading specifically that in the scenes where the sailors are pairing up with the polynesian women one of the sailors pairs up with a polynesian boy boy quote unquote i don't know how old that boy was but they ended up cutting that out of the film which if you're just being homophobic, that's one thing. But also, like, maybe he was 13 and maybe that was a good call. I don't <laughs> I don't know. Right. There's no way to tell. Gotta feel like they wouldn't have cared about that quite as much. I don't know. Also true. So when Bly got back <laughs> after, you know, he sailed his very, very small diminutive boat across the very big, big ocean. Yeah. Boat, not ship. Yeah. That's that's a boat. <laughs> that's a boat. He was greeted as a as a hero and immediately wrote a book all about it about his his trials and tribulations being a a horrible victim of a big terrible mutiny and he had kept studious notes that was totally like paperwork was a thing even then Mm -hmm. and he wrote a book and everybody read the book and everybody loved the book until the trial happened they captured the mutineers that they captured and they brought them back and put them on trial. And then some other sides of the story started to come out, including the, the appendix that was written by Fletcher Christian's brother, which there are debates about how much that was slander and how much of it was real. But some of the mutineers apparently did back up what was put in the, in the appendix. So yes, it's, it's, very cartoonishly villainous of a depiction in this movie Mm -hmm. but also to a certain extent like this has been a a very big he said he said kind of back and forth since the 1700s so yeah they punched some things up for hollywood i'm sure and i'm sure that it's not in the least bit fair of a depiction but i tend to give them a little bit of extra leeway on this one just because especially at the time That was kind of the accepted idea of what Bly was like. Well, and the funny thing is, is some of that stuff is totally accurate. Like the cheese, Mm -hmm. where the guy says, But begging your pardon, sir, back in Portsmouth, that cask was opened by your orders, and Mr. Meggs had them cheeses carried ashore. Silence! Perhaps you'll recollect, sir, Mr. Meggs had me take them to your house. That's true. He totally stole cheese off the ship to give to his wife and three daughters. 
and was like, I don't know what you're talking about later. Didn't write that in his copious notes and record keeping. Did not. Did not, but was absolutely did steal some cheese. He wasn't averse to skimming off the top. And the other thing is, is because of the kind of sailor officer he was, they made really, really, really bad money at this point, especially for the job they were doing. And what a lot of them would do is skimp on rations and supplies because they could save it all. And if they made it back to port, they could sell that for a profit. And that was their money. I can't remember the word for it, but he was one of the people who was responsible for handling that. The purser. Yes. Thank you. He was a purser. So that makes a little more sense. But then there's also the reports of like, he was dead set on no man getting scurvy Mm. on his ship. And he was adamant about fresh vegetables. And hilariously enough, uh, that scene where they're playing the violins, everybody's dancing, and you hear Bly screaming like, stop doing that! Yeah, no, that was his... He required that the men, after like 8 o'clock at night, he employed a a blind man to fiddle. Mandatory dancing. It was their exercise. Yeah. This is shown in The Bounty, the 84 film. Oh, okay. Where Liam Neeson, who's also in that, is very pissed off about having to dance, but it's like mandated. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And that's all comes from um, his journeys with Captain Cook. Right. Who was the first one to get to Tahiti. Who was also a prick. Yes. Yes. And you get to the beginning of the book that I read, uh, pretty brutally describes his death. And I was like, I don't feel bad for you, sir. You're an asshole. Not sorry about it. No, don't care. Get what you deserve. Another thing that came up is press gangs, because that's how this movie opens up. It basically opens up on a press gang. Yes, yes. The press gang! The press gang. Let's get out of here. Give me that in the king's name. A very jovial, smiling, Clark Gable, roguish kind of press gang. That you're like, right. ooh, well, well, maybe I will sign up. Thank you, sir. Hey, sailor, where are you going? Well, we got all the fish we need in one net. Line them up, bosun. Aye, aye, sir. Line up there. Lads, now you're next in week. You're in the King's Navy. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, look at this handsome guy. Like, you're in the King's Navy. Now I'm like, wait, what? I'm leaving for two years. What the fuck? <laughs> what a crazy concept. I mean, I guess it's just kind of sla- a form of slavery, which is interesting. I think I read that in the real history, most of the men on the bounty specifically were volunteers. No one was press ganged on the bounty. Okay. That was something I confirmed in the book. All of them were volunteers. They they were criminals and, and other such things. So they may have been press ganged previously, mm, but okay. everyone who was on the ship had volunteered to be there. Right. Depending on your term, volunteered as of the time, which was differentiated from being press ganged. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's go to prison or join the Navy, which is something that even the U.S. government was still doing through, I don't know, man, maybe the 80s. But like, again, uh, when I went into the military, I've, I've talked about this before. I think at some point I had to either sign something or definitely answer questions. They had to confirm that no judge had given you a choice between the military and even though like they already check your criminal record so they know that you haven't been in trouble with the law for the most part but they still make you respond in the affirmative that you are not being forced into joining the military by a judge which is also not legal so they're doing like triple due Mm. diligence to make sure that that's not that you are definitely 100 volunteering for the military so clearly this was a thing for many many centuries oh yes yeah that was definitely how they got a lot of people in the navy 
which is definitely something that explains a little bit more this sort of like 1700s 1800s kind of old school style of discipline and the separation of the classes where most of the officers midshipmen etc are coming from the aristocracy and kind of well-to-do people where it's their you know oh seven generations it's like this is your duty to join the navy and make your family mm-hmm. proud etc yep where most of the sailors are like poor disgruntled they're either getting press ganged or they're trying to avoid prison or they're you know whatever and they're overworked and you have this this tension between them so so the whole concept of mutiny and military discipline and that friction makes a lot more sense in this time period the way the movie puts it anyways like again in real Mm -hmm. life these people were quote unquote volunteering but if you're being forced to do something like this you wouldn't need a lot of excuses to sort of look for a way out and so you might not be the person to start a mutiny but if someone is you might be encouraging it and you see that in the film i mean the guy i can't remember his name but the guy with the tattoo on his chest who gets press ganged at the beginning of the film yep and then they do a great close-up of his face when christian finally decides he's had it right the surgeon dies something else happens and it's the turning point in the film where he's like we're taking over the ship and the guy's eyes get the size of dinner plates and he's like mutiny (laughs) he's like so excited he's so ready and it kind (laughs) of makes sense you know it's like yeah okay i could kind of i can kind of see it in this setting that you would be pretty excited to like end this type of living that you've been doing for two years yeah those guys uh some of those it was like Fryer, Morgan, Hayward. Right. Burkett, Millward, Ellison, uh, Morrison, Haywood, and was it Muskrat? <laughs> Muspratt. <laughs> Muspratt, right. My favorite name. They got those names correct from my my understanding. Those were I think most of those names are real and come up in the court martial, which we'll talk about later, but those are names recorded in that trial. Yeah, that's one of those things, because it's the British Navy, like, they actually know everybody's name. So, let's talk a little bit more about the production, because we've mentioned, you know, the not-so-good special effects of the movie. But Some I, of them. I think that it's totally worth talking about. I mean, this movie was 1935, and for the most part, it looks fantastic. Yeah. The models are done so well, because... Models and water, as we've talked about before, are a lot easier to see because... Scale. Yeah, water molecules don't change size. So water still moves the same regardless of if it's a tiny boat or a huge boat. Or a huge ship, rather. I think I'm just going to commit to calling it a boat the whole time, just to be <laughs> <my> folks. <laughs> it's funny because at the beginning of the 62 film, mm-hmm. uh, when they're kind of onboarding, everyone's coming on, it, the Royal Gardener comes on the ship like he literally worked for the king and he's the guy who's going to take care of all the breadfruit plants and all that oh right and he calls it a boat in that scene and all the sailors are shitting all that they're like a boat what and it's like oh shit and he's like this really posh like very chill dude but it's like a whole thing that they're making fun of him for so i just i just think of that every time i always think of uh pirates of the caribbean when jack sparrow's like i'm sorry it's such a pretty boat ship (laughs) right there it's a failed insult as opposed to ignorance though (laughs) in the history of naval service for as many illiterate men as are probably on these ships it's hilarious verbally how much the Navy has always had a tradition of sticking to their nomenclature 
really, really strictly. Oh, right. The bow and the stern and port and starboard. And that has moved into aviation and other branches of the military. And it people will call you the fuck out when you screw those up. Well, and it, 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 at some point it was starboard and larboard, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. You hear that in like some really old, like in treasure island they'll say starboard and larboard boys novels yeah well and i guess i i should very briefly explain for anyone who's not familiar with aviation ships whatever the reason you say port and starboard as opposed to left and right is because that side of the ship never changes so right what's to your left or to your right is irrelevant to where port and starboard are right it's like north south east west but for your for your vessel Yes. And so they never change. Right. And uh, uh, a little trick that I had to teach myself in aviation to learn like port from starboard is port is the shorter word. And that's why it matches left, which is the shorter word. And starboard is right, which matches the longer word. If, if you need some help. That's delightful. I always got them confused until I heard about starboard and larboard because Larboard starts with an L and left starts with an L. And so I just have to remember that starboard is right. So port must be left. Man, I am so one of those people who I have to like hold up my hands and look. Okay, which one makes the L? All right, this is left. We're going left. I know north and south, like down pat, man. I know that. So my grandmother, who always had a terrible sense of direction, Every once in a while, like when she was trying to do something, you'd see her like touch her. She'd touch herself on her on her arm near her bicep Mm. on her left arm because she whenever she got disoriented, she'd feel for her vaccination scar. Oh, right. And so she'd like touch her vaccination scar and she's like, oh, okay, that's the left one. It was real subtle, but. To lead us back into production, I'll throw it back to Katie, but one of the very minor goofs that was brought up on IMDb is that Kitty Heedy, played by Bill Bainbridge, uh, who is Tahitian, like, again, a lot of the extras here, uh, one of the things that's anachronistic about him is that you can see his smallpox vaccine scar on his left arm, and this is well before that vaccine existed. So it's like, right, oh, right. they should have covered that up. <laughs> I'm like, well, he has a mole that's three inches by two inches with hair on it, and I I don't know how you your eyes could go anywhere else. Oh, my God. In non-high definition, 1935 film, you can count the hairs on that thing. <laughs> it's so awful. I've never seen anything like it that took care of everything i couldn't look at anything other than that if it was the left side of his butt i didn't even know clark gable was in those scenes <laughs> so the ship that this is filmed on and this is apocryphal of course but a british merchant navy officer recalled seeing the fore and after egg schooner commodore 2 being broken up in cape town in 1945 having suffered severe gale damage and that was the ship that had been re-rigged for this film So a lot of this is shot on an actual ship. And I think the scenes where it's the most convincing that are the most stressful is during the storm. Although I will say reading the description of what it was like to be up on that top mass. Oh, my God. In the book that I'm reading was a lot more harrowing, which that did actually happen. Mm -hmm. That was a thing that Bly did not to... Byam. Byam is not a real person. He is a composite character. Byam is based on Peter Haywood, a 15-year-old young gentleman. 
Who was the guy who kept trying to throw the water overboard? Oh, Smith. Is that Smith? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, Herbert Munden, who, oh my God, is that not the Mr. Bean of his era? I mean, his facial expressions, I'm like, yes. Liam, I was going to ask you about this guy. Have you seen him before? Because I swear to God. Yes, I have. He He is a classic that guy. Yeah. I never know his name, but he was... Oh, his facial expressions. So his probably biggest role and what most people would know him from is he plays much in the uh, 1938 Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. Mm, Okay, okay. And he plays not a dissimilar character type, smarter, tougher... But like that was just his that was his his stock character to a certain extent was a bit of a bumbling person. Right. But he he doesn't really get a chance to shine in this the way that he does in in Robin Hood. If you haven't seen Robin Hood, you got to. He's great in it. You'll recognize his dumbass face immediately. Right. I watched Duck Soup recently with my daughter. Oh, so good. Except for that one joke. Exactly. Except for that one joke. Love it. If you haven't seen it, folks. Watch it. It's like an hour and ten minutes. It's <laughs> man. Oh man, it's brilliant. Something must be done. War would mean a prohibitive increase in our taxes. Hey, I got an uncle lives in Texas. No, I'm talking about taxes, money, dollars. Dallas. That's where my uncle lives. Dallas, Texas. <laughs> I have to say this. My my favorite thing is that this was called the runtime of a double feature. Is how they looked. Mutiny on the Bounty was. Yes. Yes. The runtime of a double feature is how this was looked at. And I was like, what? And then I watched Duck Soup and I was like, okay, yeah, I could see that because I think that's an hour and 15 or 20 minutes. It's very short. It's like, again, animated Disney film short. Right. Because you want to get as many in as possible to pull in as many people as possible to your showing. And if you're a theater owner. Well, and also you can't really make a Marx Brothers stick last for two hours. You know, that's tough. No, it's pushed by that one. And Duck Soup is their best for sure. But that's what I kept going back to because I'd watched it like two days before I watched Mutiny on the Bounty. I kept going back to um, Harpo. Facial expressions and all of that. It's the perfect little bit of offbeat comedy. And that was also, I thought that was really nice that multiple reviews of the era recognized him and said, like, all the comedy is for this guy. And he's great. Well, and we needed it. Exactly. Exactly. We needed There's it. There's not a lot of other comic relief in the film. It's like him and the doctor. Yeah. Totally. Yes. But the doctor dies. So. Right. Well, and Smith also disappears mid film. Yeah, we don't worry about him anymore. <laughs> no, it's, they completely hand wave him off. It's like, did he end up on the boat? Did he end up with the Buneers? Nobody knows. You never see him I again. assume that he just stayed on the island with that native woman and her like seven. The one he ran away from? <laughs> he ran away at first. <laughs> but that's because she has like 12 kids. And then you see him when they're leave, supposedly leaving, and it's like he comes out of her hut with the 12 kids following oh, behind. I was like, funny. I assumed he just stayed there with her and was like, I'll just be dad. It's better than being mess man for that crazy guy. I did look up Herbert Munden because I was seriously like, is this guy related to Rowan Atkinson? It seems like his grandpa. Oh, I love him as an actor, not a person. He died at 40. Yeah. So he died like a couple of years after this, and that was that. So he clearly got famous very quickly for doing this shtick. And look at how old he looks, though. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, he's younger than me. I I figured he was like 55 or 60. And then I saw how old he was. I was like, 
Oh shit! I'm glad I quit smoking. And <clears throat> let me. I want to make sure that I got the shtick right. So there's the whole wind thing, right? Where he goes to empty a bucket of <laughs> unknown substance, which seems to be a latrine. Like, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure yeah. at this time sailors just kind of shit off the side of the boat because I remember reading stories about boats just being crusted on the one side where like the sailors all shit. But I imagine for urine that they would just use a bucket, and then it was someone's job to go throw them overboard. So the scene where he throws it into the wind and it splashes all over him and then he licks his finger when the captain shows him how to test the wind i'm assuming part of the joke is that he's covered in piss and then he's licking his finger that is full oh. of piss and then there's this <laughs> so there's the scene where they're in the doldrums which i guess is pretty common around the equator there is a lot of sections where often there will be no wind right and he's taking the captain's command literally where it's like check the wind then decide what rail to go to and he comes up he doesn't feel any wind. He licks his finger, can't tell where the, because there's no wind, goes back down and deposits the bucket. And you see like 12 other buckets. And it looks like there's straw and liquid in there. And I'm like, <laughs> these are fucking piss buckets, right? And this guy is so fucking dumb that he has figured out that if there's no wind, he can't dump the piss overboard because he doesn't know what's going to happen. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> Well, and also he doesn't want to be flogged by the captain, too. Right. 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 He's so ter- it, it's very, it's a little bit of Jack Lemon that same, like, I don't, I just, I'm just going to stay out of your way, even if I have to hide. It's interesting how much of this film really aged well when it comes to what you see on the screen. Say what you will about the older style of acting and that kind of thing. But when it comes to the ships and the cinematography and all that, you know, it's easy to watch the keel hauling effect and be like, this is so cheesy. But again, it's sort of, I don't want to call it primitive filmmaking, but it's the early age of filmmaking. And honestly, I had to check myself and be like, okay, dude, if someone gave you $30 million, could you make a movie better than this? Probably fucking not. Like, it's a pretty good movie, right? Like for, I think it was, was it a $2 million budget? Something about that. Yeah, I mean, they built two full-size replica ships, I think one for the Bounty and one for the Pandora. There was a model that they built as well for, I think, one of the crashing scenes, uh, I believe, of the Pandora. And then they filmed a lot of stuff in Tahiti on location. They hired 2,500 Tahitian natives, even though the canoes were shipped in from Hollywood. So that's kind of, imagine the expense of shipping you know, hundreds of canoes to Tahiti from Hollywood at the time. Right. By ship, I'm sure. Yeah, didn't they just have them? Right. Well, again, I think these are, the, the, the trick is these are modern Tahitians, so they're not necessarily living like the people we see in the film, right? Right. No, that's fair. But they're playing their ancestors, essentially, is what's happening, which is kind of cool, especially for a movie from 35. That was a nice through line, actually. In all three of the films, all the Tahitians are played by Tahitian natives. They're speaking Tahitian, at least from what I could tell, the actors are Tahitians. Which is fucking rare for the 30s. Right. Very. If you add all three productions together, you're probably talking about 7,000 extras that were hired total playing Tahitians, which is pretty cool. They're just sitting there in Tahiti, all these actors waiting for their shot going like, when are you guys going to do the bounty again, man? I need work. Right? Yeah, exactly. And apparently a lot of the location stuff, the the film was shipped back while they did other things on the boats and on whatever, because a lot of the boat work was then done in Catalina, like we said. 
and apparently it was like stored improperly and they lost all their on location footage had to go back to tahiti and film it again so you can only oh, imagine God. how much that added to the budget celluloid man not a good uh product yeah so it wasn't clear to me i think the wider shots like the initial shot when they get to tahiti and you see all the palm trees and all the tahitian villagers coming out onto canoes and rowing out that's filmed in tahiti you can recognize the mountainous terrain but they also decked out a lot of Catalina with palm trees or set them up and a lot of grasses and stuff so that the smaller production village type stuff was then filmed in Catalina. One of the main issues being that the studios didn't want Clark Gable and I think even Lawton to go all the way to Tahiti for a month or however long it was going to take. Too precious. They didn't want anything to happen. It was much easier to keep them near LA. It was probably expensive too. These guys were getting paid by the week. Right. Expensive. And Catalina's only a 45 minute ferry ride from LA or like an hour. So it's really... As opposed to what? Like a full 14 hours to get to Tahiti? I mean, if they're taking planes, I guess. But who, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess they would have flown. But yeah. anyways... So it's interesting. I, I also read some of the shots are even shots of Tahitian villagers in Tahiti opposite Clark Gable, who's in Catalina, and they just kind of edited it together. So you can't tell. Well, that's pretty clever editing, though. That's good. I mean, movie magic, right? It works. They had to do what they had to do. You can't tell. I would never have been able to tell. No, no. not at all. But yeah, it's impressive how much effort they put into making things look authentic. I want to hear what you guys think. But if I can throw in my two small complaints overall, aside from generally matting and somebody being on a rig as opposed to really being on the ocean, which is like, whatever. I, I mean, I, I very much give them a break on that because it's like, well, that was the technology of the time or whatever. But yeah, the keel hauling effect, I th feel like could, it, it's kind of funny that they decided to show that with like a <laughs> quote unquote underwater camera or what is taking the effect of an underwater camera when it's like, well, in real life, no one would be seeing this. So it's like the easiest thing to edit where you can just show a dude going into the water and then coming back bloody as fucking dead, which is just as devastating an effect. Like, I just think from an editing perspective, like you could totally do that without having to show a creepy whatever the fuck you're showing. You didn't need that. I think what they wanted to do was show that he's being dragged on barnacles, which is the part that you don't see, but also where most of the damage happens. Right. But again, I feel like from a filmmaking perspective, and maybe that's just, you know, hindsight, knowing what you can do with modern film, you can totally show that through just good editing. You don't have to put a camera underwater or pretend to have a camera underwater. And then the only other thing is they did something you guys have probably seen a lot because you've seen so many old films when the Pandora is crashing onto the rocks at the end. They do a crash where it then fades to black. And because mm -hmm. they needed to extend that crash, the last like second, maybe less than a second of that shot is reversed. I fucking knew you were going to pull that out. I was watching it a week ago and I was like, Dan's going to say something about this shit. Well, it's funny, right? Because it's like, <laughs> it's a little too obvious in that because it's a wave. It's a wave that's right. going over a rock and then it comes back over the rock in a very... Well, it's a wave and a ship. Everything is reversing course. Yeah. So I'm like, hold on. Who the fuck figured this out on paper that they're like, we need this scene to last an extra 0.85 seconds. Let's just reverse it for 0.85 seconds. And I'm like, wait, you're just going to run the water and the ship backwards and yeah. expect no one to fucking notice that? Like, there's no way people <laughs> in the 30s didn't notice that. It's like, what the fuck? That was a bad call. But anyways, 
Overall, I thought the production was pretty fantastic, minus those two little editing things. What did you guys think? No, I agree. I you're not you're not wrong on either one of those fronts. I think it's something that yeah, I mean they might have noticed back in 1935, but I mean who's to say? It's it, it probably wasn't terribly uncommon to see something like that a little bit weird. There was actually yeah. there was actually a scene that they did the exact same thing in Bojest, but it was a lot more subtly done and it worked a lot better. It was the scene when Ray Miland had fallen asleep and Gary Cooper reaches a hand out to him and then pulls his hand back. The The hand pulling back was just a reverse shot. They just rewound the footage and played it again. Mm. And you apparently you can tell by like the cigarette smoke that is now drifting down instead of up. I, I mean, I think the special effects in this are like, in my mind, very impressive for the time. I mean, for me, here's the thing. We're getting close to the point where we're actually able to compare films that are a hundred years apart, right? Like we haven't done right. Battleship Potemkin or anything like that yet, but we're getting close to the point where we're going to be looking at films that are a century apart. And you can't compare apples to apples when it comes to technology and you have to give some slack. I'm sure you do the same thing in theater. If you are looking at how they must have done a play 600 years ago compared to how they do it now, the technology is similar, but some of that technology has advanced and you can't expect people from that time to be able to do what people can do now technologically. Oh, and the acting techniques have just changed in that span of time. Yeah. Also that, but, but that is slower, right? Like acting goes back a lot further. But what I'm saying is editing is something that translates through the eras of filmmaking. Now, sure, there are different techniques in editing and it is different now when you can do things digitally as opposed to taking a pair of scissors and cutting a piece of film and splicing it back together. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this in Terminator, but when just a little bit of better editing can take an effect that's not that great and reduce the time you have it on screen or change the angle or, you know, like things that are physically possible... That's just decision making by the filmmaker, by the editor, by the producer, whatever, as opposed to just something you couldn't physically do at the time. Right. So that's where I'll critique a film is when I'm like, well, if you just cut this out and do some acting on either end instead, this scene would work as opposed to what you tried to show way too early when you didn't have the technology to pull that off. Really, the 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 yardstick for success is these people on a boat that's not really on the ocean looks just as good, if not better, than Hunt for Red October people standing on the tower, not really on the ocean. If your film from 1935 still looks better than the tower scene in Hunt for Red October, then you win. For sure. I think part of the reason is that this is of the era where like, you kind of had to actually do a lot of this stuff. In order to make it work, like a lot of those scenes that are filmed in Catalina are like one ship filming another ship moving along, doing its thing. And I think they made very good choices about what to show and what to hint at when it comes to, like I mentioned in the book that I've been reading, Mutiny on the Bounty, when it talks about what it would have been like to climb up to the top of the mast and be rocking back and forth. Like the book gives such a more visceral feeling of it because it explains that, you know, you're literally going, you know, sometimes 180 degrees, almost touching the water, depending on where the ship is at and where the waves are and how, 
you know, there's a huge difference in the book describing where, you know, you're climbing up this mast and you are going uh, 180 degrees from one side to the other, where in the film, it shows the ship getting just scarily close to being, uh, you know, almost capsizing. Yeah, exactly. But we don't get to see that with the man because that would be horrifically dangerous and irresponsible. Or very expensive to pull off in that time. Yes, yes. And, and but we see him, you know, tying himself to the mast and which they definitely would have done because otherwise you would die. And that's the detail, right? That's the thing that tells you that he is in a really precarious situation. It's like, oh, shit, he had to tie himself to the mast like that's clearly he can't hang on on his own. Right, exactly. And that's the thing that they do is they know how to work around their limitations with implying via him tying himself to the mast or when he they they are like, all right, well, here's a bottle of booze to take up with you because this shit sucks. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, only a desperate man is going to climb that far, that difficult with a bottle of booze, (laughs) make it and... It uses all these context clues to show us the dire situations. That's like the only way I would be able to go up there is if there was a bottle of booze at the top. I wouldn't be able to go up there at all. That's not for me. I mean, that that seems like an overarching concept for both the leadership in the Navy and every sailor down to the last swabby understands that the pint of rum that they get every day as their ration is necessary to make it through this fucking experience. Like clearly they all knew like you have to be mostly drunk to like be okay with what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless of whether you're made to go up on the mast or not. Right. Right. So I think they just very expertly use the skills that they'd learned so far in filmmaking brute force with like, well, I guess we'll just outfit an old ship and throw it to the seas and film what we can, which is kind of what they did with Dust Boat. And this blend of hinting, suggestion, and then going too far, like they do with the keel hauling scene, where it just doesn't quite work. But the ratio of like doesn't quite work to works really well is so skewed in the works really well that... I am just so willing to forgive, like, Halloween skeleton floating under a boat. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Overall, it's well done. So, despite the fact that of the Captain Bly performances that I have seen, Charles Lawton's is really good, but I, I didn't find it to be the best written one. It was a fascinating performance. Uh, I Especially, man, some of the effects they use, a lot of the makeup at the end of their dinghy voyage, when they're, like, making it to... Uh, Timor or wherever they ended up making landfall and like Bly just looks he he looks like when Dr. Jekyll is transforming into Mr. Hyde you know they like put the Mm -hmm. shadows in the right place and like dark circles and then one of those motherfuckers on the boat in the back left looks like a living skeleton I was like who is that guy and how did they get (laughs) them to lose 80 pounds because he looks like he looks like he was on a boat for 50 days out on the ocean it was like crazy And it's kind of funny because then I read a comment from an interviewer with uh, Lawton where it says, years later, he was in a conversation with playwright George Kaufman and Lawton remarked that he had given such a good performance in this film because he came from a long line of seafarers. Referring to Lawton's performance in The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1939, a few years later, Kaufman dryly commented, I assume then 
that you also came from a long line of hunchbacks <laughs> which i was like damn that's a fucking burn but i didn't realize that he must have played quasimodo in the hunchback in our day i'm he like famously played quasimodo mm-hmm. right and i'm like okay i could see that i could see with makeup like he's got the face and you know he's got the look there's actually a uh so in my favorite steve martin movie dead men don't wear plaid which is a it's a spoof of the old film noir detective movies where they splice in scenes from old film noir movies to okay. for Steve Martin to play opposite of people. Oh God. Okay. So like Alan Ladd shoots him, Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe helps him solve the case and Oh, that's hilarious. It is brilliant. I fucking What years are from? It's from the eighties. I want to say maybe like 85, 86. Okay. I gotta look it up. is genius. And I love it so much, but there's a scene where he's playing against clips of Charles Lawton from the bribe. And like Charles Lawton is trying to bribe this guy to get out of town. So he's like, you could be a guy who collects $10,000 just to leave this stinking town. I could, could I, you know who I could be? Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> It was just like one of those that like, if you don't know that Charles Lawton played the hunchback in Notre Dame, right? it just sails right past you. But like, oh God, I love that scene so much. Yeah, it's completely random if you don't know the history, but I'm glad I know that now. One of the most interesting things I found, which just colors the background of Clark Gable and Charles Lawton's performance with each other, at least, and their interaction was for one, and I don't know, Liam, if you have some more background on this on acting, but... There are a couple of points of contention between Charles Lawton and Clark Gable. One of them is that Charles Lawton's style of acting was this kind of each man is in his own battle with himself. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't look anyone in the eyes when he was acting specifically with Gable and Gable stormed off set a couple of times because he was like, I can't fucking work with this guy. He won't look at me. Right. And so there was a little bit of that going on. Clearly they had two different acting styles and acting backgrounds and then more infamously and has a little bit more to do with their private lives is charles lawton was not only gay but it sounds like he was pretty openly gay especially for this era to the point where at one point he he brought his quote muscular boyfriend to the island as his personal masseur and they were obviously a devoted couple and would go everywhere together and Clark Gable would turn away in disgust. So Clark Gable being infamously a Republican and pretty right wing and a notorious homophobe did not care for Lawton's overt homosexuality. And on top of it, he kind of felt inferior to the actor for being a UK trained Shakespearean actor. So that was part of it too. But I... I'd never even heard of Charles Lawton before I watched this movie, so I didn't know any of that. You guys know any of this background stuff? Yes. <laughs> Liam, do tell. Of course you do, Liam. <laughs> so I was introduced to Charles Lawton. The first Charles Lawton movie I saw was actually Witness for the Prosecution. Ooh. Which was a great Agatha Christie mystery. I wish there were a way I could come up with the Oh my God, I could actually shoehorn that into a DCE. Oh, I'm so happy right now. You could? Oh boy. I actually could. I was like, there's no way I could. Wait, yes, there is. Liam's talking about our $4 a month Patreon show where we do kind of sort of war related films. Yeah, Danger Close Enough, where we can like figure if, hey, if we can 
reasonably connected to war, then we can reasonably do it on the show. There's it's a lot great. of shoehorning involved there. We're close enough. Then it's close enough. Right there. Four bucks a month. We have a blast. You know, everybody lets their hair down. It's a good time. But uh, yeah, so and I was absolutely blown away with his performance in it. It was engaging. It was dramatic. It was funny. He's just, he was great. He was everything you ever want. And in that movie, one of the supporting roles is played by a woman named Elsa Lancaster, who I didn't know at the time. She's another great character actor. You see her all over the place. Great. Oftentimes in comedic roles, sometimes in some more serious stuff, but... Elsa Lancaster was actually his wife from 1929 until his death. His beard? Yeah, essentially is his beard. So I think that was to a certain extent why he was able to get away with being reasonably openly gay out at this time period. He did his due diligence. He played the game. He did the thing. I don't know... For, like, I honestly don't know uh, any established facts on Elsa Lancaster's orientation. So I don't know if it was a double beard situation or if she was just kind of fine with it. Oh, a double beard. I've never heard of that. At that time, it would have been called a companionate marriage. That was totally a thing. You entered into it under the uh, under the agreement that there was no sex. And some people did it because they were asexual. Some people did it because they were gay. Some people did it for their own reasons that we don't know. But that's what people would refer to it as. Oh, they're in a companionate marriage. Well, and also to a certain extent, I think Charles Lawton was helped in his ability to, you know, live his life the way he wanted to. Not to be mean, but because he's also kind of fuck ugly. It's not very nice. Definitely not Brad Pitt, yeah. If his star quality was in any way, shape, or form tied to sex appeal... If he was Rock Hudson and 20 years later... Yeah, if he was Rock Hudson or if he was Cary Grant or, you know what I mean? Like, they're just people that you're like, you can't be gay. All the women want you. Right. This was not the case with Charles Lawton. Very, very few people wanted Charles Lawton. But yeah, I could definitely see that creating some tension in the the behind the scenes. Which is so odd for Clark Gable. I mean, as we think of it now, because he was so... Pretty. Pretty, yeah. But like kind of forward thinking for his time. And maybe that came later, because really when I think of that, I think of his relationship with Hattie McDaniels. Mm. Where they were close friends in a time when it was not normal for, you know, rich, handsome white men and very dark skinned black women to be friends, even if they were Hollywood stars together. You know, that was controversial and a big deal. And on the set of Gone with the Wind, he threatened to quit if they wouldn't integrate the restrooms. Oh, he was very adamant about this. So it's this very strange thing of. Does not fit with our morals today, as it were, but made sense at the time. He's what Bill Maher calls people like this Republican classic, like Jimmy Stewart, you know, where it's mm, like, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. You see a lot of good morals there and you can agree with them, even though you're going to find things politically that you disagree with them about. Peter makes some good mentions about the difference between the scroll in this film and reality and history. So I'm just going to read directly from his research here. The scriptwriters had plenty of torture porn with whipping around the fleet, keel hauling, flogging, reduced rations and water, 
exposure at masthead or in the rigging, they only missed grog stoppages where the sailors were not allowed their daily allowance of rum and water. Perhaps it was too soon after Prohibition for drinking? But even if the screenwriters laid it on pretty thick, you can't deny that Bly suffered three mutinies. One was the Bounty, one was the Nor in 1797, and one was the Rum Rebellion when he was governor in New South Wales in 1808. Bly's first mutiny was the subject of the movie set in 1789, but showing what absolute horseshit the end role is, Bly was captain during a second mutiny during the infamous 1797 Nor and Spithead mutinies that also featured in O'Brien and Forrester books. There is no way, as the end roll suggests, that the mutiny on the bounty created a new relationship between officers and men and set the Royal Navy up for future success. There were a few things in that scroll that kind of raised an eyebrow for me. One was that, and I didn't know if this is looked upon generally as like a a landmark case that really changed the naval rules and regulations for England. I haven't gotten to the end of the book that I'm reading, which I'm sure will cover it, but everything I could find, because I saw that and I was like, that's a huge thing, because there was a huge shift at a certain point in the British Navy from the horrificness of what they did before to... We can beat you to let's maybe not beat you. I mean, slightly less horrificness of what it was later. And I could not find anything that supported that. That this was like the revolutionary thing that made all the British Navy go, oh, we should be nicer to our sailors. I think Katie can promise us and all the listeners and the group that she'll do an update post in the group when she finishes the book and she can tell us about it. I will. I will give y'all a book report. (laughs) Also, if this were if this were a couple of years later. I would almost assume that that was like a none too subtle World War II propaganda. Mm. That it was like throwing support towards the British and it's like the British are the good guys. Right. We're telling the story about how bad it used to be, but now it's much better, yada, yada, yada. If this movie were made in like 37, 38, that's where I would think the, the thinking was at. But in 1935, I feel like that might be a little early. Yeah, yeah, no. I will say this, based on what we've read about the history and the research that we have, despite the fact that Bly's cruelty is exaggerated in probably in the novel and in this film and the other iterations, I think it's pretty safe to say that his poor people's management skills probably did not change much based on this event since he was the quote-unquote cause of two other mutinies. I think that's probably pretty safe to say. I don't think it was just like a coincidence that people rebelled against him three times. Right. How often do we hear about mutinies on on this kind of ships? You know, not that often. Not enough where one captain should have three. Well, and his name did go, uh, again, probably largely in part because of the, the novel and the movie that followed quickly thereafter. But I mean, his, his name is referenced in other movies about fictitious mutinies. Like he is kind of the gold standard uh, for (laughs) shitty captains, man. I wonder what his descendants feel like. They're just like pissed. Yeah. I mean, he had three daughters, so it seems it stands likely that he probably has some descendants still alive today. The other thing that caught my eye on the scroll that I was just like, huh, we're just gonna, we're just not gonna add any additional comment on that. Is there like, oh yeah, they needed these breadfruit plants so that they could have cheap food to feed to the slaves. Because of the U.S. Revolution. 
that was that was the big thing because it used to be that they would import fish and food from the American colonies to the Caribbean colonies and that would support oh. them. Now they had to pay money. They lost access to all that free food. Exactly. So that was the huge driver for this was trying to find another uh, food source for their slave colonies because one colony had rebelled. That's so fascinating that it was just like, oh, yeah, we're just going to drop that in there. Right. And I was I was curious, Katie, I don't know if any of the reviews at the time or any of the research from from what you did of reactions to it at the time made mention of that. I was kind of curious what the, what an audience would think just being like, Oh, and they're going to go get food so that they can have something cheap to feed to the slaves today. You wouldn't just drop that in there and just move along. There would have to be some kind of commentary. No, then you absolutely would. This is again, what five, four or five years before gone with the wind, which is absolutely, I'm just going to say it both. A movie I I dearly love because I watched a lot growing up and is absolutely like New South propaganda. Yeah, it's it's lost cause. Yeah, they are. They, it is both of those things. So that was seen, I think, at the time. It's just like, oh, well, yeah, you have to have food. Well, you got to feed them. What are you going to do? <laughs> right. Exactly. It's that kind of. Peter brought this point up that ends in a hilarious funny anecdote i think he says you can't ignore that this whole bounty breadfruit enterprise was to prop up enterprises relying on enslaved labor cheap high yield food found in one part of the tropics transplanted to another part of the tropics so that a convenient food source will be available without diverting arable land or enslaved labor the enslaved people did not like the breadfruit so <laughs> even the successful not. second cruise that Bly undertook later to transplant the trees to Jamaica didn't work out despite the successful delivery. And we forgot to mention that too, is that the film depicts Bly basically <laughs> coming back from England with another ship to go gather the mutineers on the Pandora. In real life, Bly was not on the Pandora and it's not that romantic in terms of justice no although no that, uh, that captain on the pandora was apparently a bit of a prick too because he just arrested all these dudes who were like hey thank god you're here and they're right. like yeah you're under arrest but during the court martial which we'll talk about in a little bit bly was on his way to jamaica with his second breadfruit mission so mm -hmm. he wasn't right. really he didn't really get to watch any of this go down and he did not get to make his statements or be shunned by um lord admiral nelson i'm pretty sure what is breadfruit? Is it like a shitty banana? No. Uh, have you ever seen jackfruit? I have eaten jackfruit as a vegetarian. I have not eaten jackfruit. That's good. I've heard of it. Okay, so you can Google this. I don't know how different breadfruit is from jackfruit. On the outside, it looks very similar. It's a very large, spiky green ball that can weigh... Uh, if you look at the trivia, I mean, it's substantial. It's like a lot of food. And jackfruit, when you break it up, can be used as kind of a meat replacement. You can make like tacos out of it and stuff. It's good. Mm -hmm. Breadfruit seems to imply that the texture of the fruit itself is a little bit more like bread. But the point is the tree will produce dozens and dozens of these really large, like up to basketball sized fruits that have a lot of sustenance to them. So I think that's the idea behind it is that it's... Uh, it's a lot of uh, bang for the buck, so to speak. There you go. Right. 
Right. That's that was the whole point is that it's like, oh, well, we can grow these in a tropical environment and it will provide food for our slaves like assholes. Exactly like assholes. I mean, sure. But also, if you have slaves, you also need to figure out ways to feed them like that's a thing. Yes, but you shouldn't have slaves in the first fucking place. <laughs> yes, yes. The podcast is anti-slavery and all that. I'm just saying. We, we've discussed this. Look, the British outlawed slavery before the Americas did. So let's not get all uppity about slavery, okay? They were ahead of us. So the mutineers escape, most of them. They sail away and they find refuge on Pitcairn Island because nobody knows where it is. And it doesn't really have a natural landing place. So they're like, this is the best place to do it. We will find this island paradise. And this is where we will live forever with our new Tahitian women and friends. Right. And they lived happily ever after. No, they did not. No, they didn't. (laughs) The film also depicts these Tahitian women voluntarily going with them. In real life, they tricked them into getting onto the bounty. And then they left. (laughs) Not only left, they cut off the anchor. And just sailed away. Yeah, they abducted God. these women, then took them to Pitcairn, and then created a small society from that. Because the island was uninhabited. So they landed. It was six men, 11 women, and one baby girl. And then they sort of kept having children and mixed Tahitian and, and British. Well, yes and yes and no. Like, they, they did, but they also murdered each other. Yeah. (laughs) Right. By the time they actually found them, there was only one actual mutineer left, and they were like, we're just going to go. Sorry. We're we're not going to bother you anymore. You got kind of this whole creepy born-again Christian thing happening here that is freaking us out, kind of. Yeah, and the story that the one survivor tells, he kind of said several things, and it's unclear whether Christian got in a fight with one of the other sailors and was murdered, whether he committed suicide, whether someone else killed him. It's kind of like the fate of Fletcher Christian is not really known to history with any kind of certainty. No, there was, uh, I think the woman who was living on the island as his wife, Mm -hmm. I believe she said that he was, that he was murdered. But again, there's some conflicting reports. At least one man tried to lay claim to her after his death. This is what I read. And they were like, no, no. It quickly devolved into like some very colonialist, like the few Tahitian men that they had brought with them. There was tension between the English mutineers and the Tahitian men because the English started acting like the English tend to do in those situations and tried to set themselves up above the Tahitians. Of course. And uh, that led to the Tahitians killing them. Classic. And then the few English killing those Tahitians. And then a couple of, I think there were like three mutineers left and two of them got drunk and killed each other. And then there was just one guy left. (laughs) Who felt kind of bad about the whole thing. It was like, maybe we should turn to God. Yeah, he was like, well, obviously this isn't working for us. So, Jesus. Which also didn't work. No, no. I can't. I know I sent this to you guys in the in the text thread, but there is a bonkers ass old 1930s documentary about the people living on Pitcairn. Not to be confused with the neighborhood of Pitcairn, which is in Pittsburgh, but the on the island of Pitcairn, there's an old 
around the time that the movie was made, they made this nice short little documentary about this island paradise that these primitive folks who are the descendants of the mutineers are, they're living this quiet utopian life. And it is the most fucking outrageous thing I've ever seen. I believe it. So as is to be expected and as depicted, the crown sends a ship to go gather these mutineers. so They can be brought back to England and court-martialed and they bring 10 prisoners back from the bounty. None of the ones who had left for Pitcairn. This is all the ones who chose to stay behind in Tahiti because they're saying, I'm not actually a mutineer. I don't need to run away. I am still loyal to the crown. All of them are like, well, we didn't do anything. And then there were three or four of them who like just tried to hide because they didn't want to leave with the Pitcairn crew. And I can only imagine how much these dudes were turning on each other. Right. Like, wait, what? I saw you with a gun. I saw you with a sword. Like, I didn't do anything. And everyone's calling everyone else a liar. In the meantime, all the people coming from England are like looking at each other like, okay, I guess we're arresting all these motherfuckers. You're all liars. Lying, both of you. Sergeant, put these men in irons. Irons? What for? Mutiny? But we're not mutineers, sir. And like Bly says in the film, Court Martial in England will decide that. But we're as loyal as you, sir. Court martial in England will decide that. You're all going to prison, and then a court will decide what to do with you. So, Katie, you want to take us into the court martial? I found this to be one of the most fascinating scenes in the film, for sure. Especially because I felt the pacing of the film has kind of a nice culmination to this point. Like, the mutiny happens relatively late in the film. It's definitely third act and then the court martial is at the very end of the film yes but it kind of does give a very satisfying like showdown especially since they of course in dramatic hollywood fashion they added bly to the pandora and to the court martial which did not happen in real life but it makes sense for dramatic purposes what were you guys' thoughts on this court martial scene this is where it all gets very murky about what actually happened in the court-martial or in what they're talking about in the court-martial in the lead-up to the court-martial but then the court-martial is absolutely something that is recorded right it is recorded i do not i'm fairly certain that the recorded court-martial is not what is used in this scene but yes all of that stuff is recorded as peter fitzsimmons talks about in his book totally worth reading just for that little bit of how all this history comes to life they get taken by the Pandora. Bly is revealed to be on the Pandora, which is obviously not accurate. And then the Pandora crashes and you don't know whether or not these, you know, 11, 10 men are going to be rescued from the hold. Oh, right. And that moment of tension is very fascinating because it speaks a lot to Bly because you wonder, is Bly just going to let them drown? Because obviously they're not his top priority, but then they are. Because he wants to see them brought before the court. He wants justice. Yeah. uh Exactly. Exactly. So then we go and what is that kid's name? The one I fucking hate. Yes. Yes. The one with the the wife. Oh, that's uh, Ellison. Eddie Quillen playing Ellison. I hate him so much. Please, Liam, tell us why you hate this guy. I'll get to it. We'll we'll get there. So we kind of get to see a couple of different emotional through points here because ellison you know we've seen him since the beginning being taken away from his wife who is she pregnant or does she have a baby at that point i think they just had a baby okay so we see him who he's been press ganged 
And then we see Byam, who is kind of the gentleman in all of this, who eventually gets pardoned, who gives this big, you know, speech. And then we see a couple of other just regular dudes, pretty much. Isn't a man with a funny name. Muspratt. Yes, Muspratt is there. And we kind of get this moment of completely ahistorical of all of these men having these discussions about oh i want to see my wife oh i'm being betrayed by you know the the england and all this where like that guy would never have been allowed to see his wife they would be like we don't we don't care right they're just like yeah go ahead just leave this prison to go see your wife real quick yeah we don't care that is not how that shit worked then they not a problem no conjugal visits not in this context in other <sighs> contexts you probably could have paid for it at newgate but not not within this context too serious of charges and we get to see them all come to trial and that's where it gets very uh i don't know what we would think of as like a few good men moment today a courtroom procedural right we get just this little bit of that at the end where bly uh very posturingly gives his perspective on it and tell me if i'm wrong about this i am pretty sure that that is supposed to be lord nelson that's the first i've heard of it but that's cool like that makes sense i don't know we have to fact check that from what I could tell, that is supposed to be Lord Nelson because they refer to him by name. And I was like, really? Could that be him? Is Lord Nelson like high admiral of the entire British fleet? Is that who he is? He would have been the vice admiral at that point. He's definitely King Shit of Fuck Mountain. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this would have been near the latter part of his career because he, he died in 1805. So he definitely would have had... I guess the standing if someone had assigned him that it seems like a little low of a thing for Lord Nelson to be involved in. Am I wrong here? I mean, court martials are a huge deal. Something like this is a big deal because it sets a standard within the Navy. And I think it's more like a court martial for a mutiny on a large Navy ship is a big deal because court martials exactly. are going to happen all the fucking time, multiple times a year. Yes. Yeah, it's like you got drunk and punched your sergeant. You're going to get court martialed. Yeah, depending on the offense. Right, right. But this kind of thing where it's setting a precedent where the crown went and sent a whole ass other ship and provisioned them who knows how much money that costs to go and find these mutineers right just from my own knowledge did the movie hand wave this the pandora goes to get them mm -hmm. the pandora crashes mm -hmm. then what another ship came and picked them up Shh, it's fine they just hand waved all that shit We're like what happened in real life well in real <laughs> life i think the crew of the pandora basically did the same thing that bly did they got in a little ass boat and followed his same path, essentially. They went back to England with the prisoners in a little dinghy? They were a lot closer when they crashed. Uh, they weren't that much closer. I don't think, like, they were, it was They were in a, Tahiti. What do you mean they were closer? I'm so confused. They weren't in Tahiti. So, like, they, they got the guys in Tahiti, but they kept looking for Christian. I think by the time they crashed, I'm it was- so confused. It wrecked on the Great Barrier Reef. So they would have been really close to Australia. Right. It wouldn't have been nearly as dicey. They would have gone to Australia and then taken a ship from there. Right, right. right. Because Australia at that point is still very much a British colony. It's like none of this shit's actually like real world close. Especially not back then. It's like, oh, we're going to take you to justice in 25 months. <laughs> Australia is pretty close to Tahiti in the grand scheme of things. But I'm saying, like, Bly took that little 
piece of shit boat like 3,500 miles. Yes, yes. Whereas the Great Barrier Reef they would have crashed on would not have been nearly that far from Australia. They definitely would have... Uh, Australian waters are very active, so they definitely would have gotten picked up before. This is one of the few of the three films that shows you their actual voyage on a map. And they also hand wave this, even though they show it. The zigzag. Yes. They go from England, they get to Cape Horn, then they zigzag, and then they change directions. Which is accurate. I can tell you why. It's because they tried to pass it in winter. And so, like, the storms were so fucking bad. We saw that in Master and Commander. Yeah, exactly. They'd sail for a day, and then they'd recalculate where they were, and they'd lost, like, the equivalent of 20 nautical miles. Because... You just couldn't make any headway. And this is covered thoroughly in the other two iterations of the film. Oh, interesting. It shows them trying to do it. It shows one of the sailors who had done it before and be like, Captain Bly, you're crazy. You can't go through Cape Horn in winter. And he was like, but we're going to save five days. We're doing it. And then he tries to do it. And then we're going to waste two months. And then he has to go all the way around. So like this just kind of hand waves that with a map. That's some pretty good visual storytelling for the time. Right. They had like whole romance plots that they had to weave into this thing. So, I mean, as far as like economy of storytelling but yeah it, it immediately reminded me of master and commander because that's when they run into a lot of their troubles trying to go around the horn yeah apparently in winter times yeah don't do that big no-no so we get into the court martial scene and i think this is where all of the acting kind of culminates you know we obviously clark gable is not here but we get to see franchot tone give his amazing speech at the end to kind of combat Bly's story where he's obviously lying, at least according to our experience as an audience. And it's very powerful, very moving to watch. And I imagine it was probably even more so at the time when it came out. Now it feels a little melodramatic stagey. Yes. But I think that works considering the rest of the film has also been pretty stagey. But what did you guys think of this court-martial scene? I really liked the scene. I thought it was an interesting use of dramatic license on, again, Bly is there, even though in real life he wasn't there, but totally makes sense to wrap up kind of the justice angle of the plot. But I think the thing that surprised me the most is actually how much time the British Navy Admiralty Authority went through trying to get the details of what happened and be like, okay, so, oh, you saw him holding a gun. Okay. We need witnesses. Would you like to challenge your accuser? You can come up and question them. Like I was amazed actually at how much agency they were giving the accused because from what I understand, we may have brought this up before, even the modern British legal system, there's a very stark difference from the U S legal system in that in The U.S. justice system, generally speaking, you are considered innocent until proven guilty. And like, that's how our system works, right? Right. I could be wrong about this, but from everything I've heard in the U.K., you are assumed guilty until proven innocent. And that's kind of how their court system works. The burden of proof is on the defense. Right. Whereas in the U.S., it's on the prosecution. You have to prove that you didn't do it as opposed to them having to prove that you did. Right. That is the thing that kind of struck me is how much agency the accused were being given by this, not just 
British court system, but a British court system in the late 1700s in the military, where clearly the punishment here for the most part is going to be death by hanging. I just thought it was going to be a cut and dry, like, okay, Captain Bly, let's hear your story. Well, uh, I was in charge. And then all these people were like, oh, uh, we're not getting enough food. We're taking over the ship. And they're like, uh, this is the king's ship. You can't fucking do that. You're all dead. Like, that's kind of what I thought was going to happen in this court martial. Mm-hmm. I was honestly wondering why there wasn't more of a, like, hey, you guys get some kind of, like, JAG lawyer or so. You know what I mean? Like, right. there was nobody there to speak for the men. It was just kind of like, hey, you idiot, do you want to ask Captain Bly any questions? <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's also true, but I don't know. For me, the overwhelming feeling was I was surprised by how much agency these people were given. Liam, what, what was your overall impression? I honestly didn't love it. Oh, really? Well, so I don't know if there's too much of it or if there's too little of it, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I hate that fucking guy. The, the guy with the wife and the kids. Ellison, the bayonet guy. Okay. He's such a focal point for your heartstrings at the end of the movie. And I've spent the rest of the movie absolutely not liking this dickhead. Hmm. I didn't like him in the first scene that I see him in. I don't like his dancing. I don't like his waving bayonets around. Everything he does, I hate. And so then it's like a lot of it is asking me to feel really sorry for him. And I don't. But he calls Bly a blue-nosed baboon. I mean, that's a pretty great line. I, I hate that line so much. What? <laughs> wow. Everything that guy does, uh. he, it's like the Midas touch, but everything turns to shit. I just do not like him at all as an actor or as a character. So that's why I think a lot of it doesn't work for me. I also thought it was a little bit, I mean, even for the time, a little bit stagey. They've reached a verdict. Watch the deck. The deck? A midshipman's dirt would be lying on the table before Lord Hood. If it lies crosswise, you've been acquitted. If the point lies toward you, you've been condemned. God be with you. I was like, really? Yeah, that seems like that might not be an actual thing. Like, who came up with that? Like, I know that there's all kinds of ridiculous traditions in the military to a certain extent where it's like, oh, and this is the thing that we do because... It's Wednesday and there's toast. I don't know. Like there's just, there's just, (laughs) I don't know all of the reasons for all of the time honored traditions and things that they do. So I know there's a lot of that, but that one kind of pushed my willing suspension of disbelief a little too far on that where he like walks in. They just want him walking in and then looking at a dagger that's pointing at him, you know, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's got that, that flair kind of thing. Do you guys know where they are? I mean, they're on a ship at that point. Did you realize that, Liam? I didn't realize that when I first saw the scene. That they were on a ship? Right. I don't know if I did. I feel like there were a lot of hallways for to be on a ship. Okay. Well, let me walk you through my dumbass interpretation of the visuals of this scene, which is like very common for the way my brain works. I'm watching the court martial when they're showing the court and the admirals and whatever, the officers, and you look behind them, the windows are angled out. Yes, yes. Like the windows on the back of a ship. My first thinking is, oh, that's cool. 
naval courtrooms back in the day were designed to look like the back of a ship because it's like a whole theme they probably <laughs> they probably threw like a wheel up but and, you know there's like a it's oh, like I the way it. you make a restaurant like, and then of course later i realized i'm like <laughs> oh no they're holding the court martial on the back of a ship i am yep. a fucking idiot yep. anyways i just thought i'd point that out <laughs> I think the ship thing didn't quite work for me because I felt like they were walking down hallways or it's like there was a lot of like going through what looks to be like just an office door trying to get into the courtroom. And I was like, I don't think that's how ships are built. That's what threw me. But no, I thought French Chateau's performance at the end was good. It's I mean, it doesn't really like make your eyes water today like it probably did in 1935. So well delivered. You see the beat work that he does. He goes through various beat changes. But yeah, it's just so frustrating to me when I watch idiots try to defend themselves in a courtroom. <laughs> Do not wrong. Somebody get this guy a public defender. Like anything. <laughs> Who's letting this guy talk? Yeah, it's like, why is like, well, did you see me use the bayonet? Mr. Fire, you say I was armed with a bayonet. Did you see me use it? By no means, lad. By no Address means. Address your replies to the court. My lord, he didn't use the bayonet. He's doing his best, but you're like, honey, no, shh, 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 stop. Just stop. And now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask ourselves, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Liam. Yes. What did you think of the film overall? (sighs) I think the objective of this movie was honestly more than anything else, just to tell a really good rollicking yarn. I think this was a topic that was on the forefront of everybody's minds, or at least recognizable in the, in popular culture at the time, because of the book that had come out that had done very well. It was an infamous case anyway, It had been adapted a time or two in some various forms prior to that. This was also in the 1930s, and we we talked about this with Bo Jess. This was a time when people were taking things that had been done as silent movies already and being like, no, we can do that better now. We've got the technology. So I think this is. they just thought the time was right to tell this story, tell it again, and tell it as well as it had ever been told at that point. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's about the... The objective I can think it's not really a star vehicle for any one person because you do have these three pretty powerhouse performances from three very, very different actors. But, you know, this was a time when it was like, hey, shooting in Tahiti was enough to get butts in the seats. We were like, hey, I'm never going to see Tahiti, so I might as well go to the movies and see Clark Gable rolling around in the waves in Tahiti. Yeah. And I think that's that's a lot of where the mindset was. I don't know that they were necessarily going for extremely high art, but I think they just knew what they wanted to do and they knew how to do it well. They obviously weren't terribly concerned with historical accuracy. I've often thought that at some point we should do a series on notoriously inaccurate war movies. I can think of a few off the top of my head. I don't know if this one necessarily qualifies. I also don't know if this actually qualifies as a war movie. I know it's funny. We haven't brought that up, but I didn't think about it until you mentioned it. I was like, oh yeah, there's no like actual war in this. Yeah. Cause I'm watching it and I'm just going like, oh no, I did it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. But you know, there is combat. There is a mutiny, hostile takeover. 
And officially, it does take place while they're sailing under the Articles of War. So there is a war going on. Technically, technically. They they are technically at war with the French. Just these guys aren't physically and actively at war with the French. Kind of in the rear with the gear. That gear being red plants and Tahitian women. Uh, <laughs> so, was it on target? I do think it was. I think that, especially for 1935... This is a movie that really was kind of firing on all cylinders. You got some absolutely great actors playing these roles from Bly to Christian to Byam to a lot of the supporting cast. It's a a lot of that guy's like, oh, hey, I've seen that guy in that thing. Right. You get a lot of those in this movie and they a lot of them are stock characters, but they're also just some of the classic archetypes that you expect to see in a naval, a British naval picture even today so yeah i do think it was on target and did i like it yes i don't love this movie but i really like this movie it's by and large it holds up there's a few things in it not even just so much the technology of the body being keel hauled or the the funny editing tricks that they resort to in times that are a little desperate but i think mostly for me it's it's the way some things are written that just don't quite hold up as well as I wish they did. So it does get a little too melodramatic at points, but by and large, I think it's a really good film and obviously one of the early best picture winners. So it, it obviously was a hit with, with critics and audiences at the time. Katie, what did you think? I think I'm really on the same page with you here, Liam. I mean, I I think you, you said it a, a rollicking tale. That is exactly what I had written in my notes is that that's what the whole point was, is to tell this fascinating story that, again, there was a book published or rather there'd been a trilogy of books published three years earlier that they were really trying to capitalize on that notoriety. And I think the goal is to also beyond telling that rollicking yarn is to kind of shine a light on this history slash not quite a fable but it's an imagining of a of a historical event and i think for the time they absolutely hit it it is it is right on target it is exactly what audiences wanted at the time it is something that has lived on so well not just because of the actors but the story it's inspired so many other remakes and i think it Still mostly hits now. There are a lot of cringe moments. There's a cringe level for this, for sure. But it's not too outrageous in regards to some of the old movies I've seen. So I think it it still kind of waveringly hits the target. It's not dead center anymore, but it's still on it's still on the board, as it were. And I was kind of conflicted about whether or not I liked this movie because of how like wavering it is. But I think at the end I really enjoyed watching it because of the performances, Charles Lawton in particular, because as I was watching this, I was like, God, this guy is so like villain. Is this accurate? And so as I'm watching it, I'm kind of like doing a little Googling on the side to, to see it. I was like, oh, okay, this isn't necessarily accurate, but they're trying to do something with this character and tell a particular kind of tale. And that allowed me to appreciate Charles Lawton's performance and especially his interactions with Clark Gable. This isn't my, f- as obviously it's not my favorite Clark Gable performance because he feels a bit 
No, the best Clark Gable performances in it happen one night. And I'm not disputing that. I, I don't know. He feels a bit stilted in this almost. Like he's try hard almost in this. Like at the end, you see him giving this rousing speech to his men of some egalitarian society that we all know didn't come to exist. <laughs> While he's dressed as a pirate. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's got that bandana on his head just, now, and I'm just, just like, so, wow, he's no. all salty. I mean, they were kind of pirates, sort of. They were. They were. <laughs> it was just such an interesting costume change, where it's just like, he's got this <laughs> curly, flowing locks, and then just now it's like, now he's grizzled, and he's got a bandana. Right, and, and he'd been so, like, crisp white throughout the whole thing, because that was my biggest thing I'm watching, and I'm like, I'm sorry, they do not have bleach those men's clothes would not have been nearly that clean. No way. No way. But I really liked it as a period piece, both as a film about a period in time and as an older movie. And I think it has a lot to offer from that perspective. So I liked it. And it's, I'll probably watch it again. Not for a while. But I, I think Charles Lawton in particular will draw me back to this because he's so good at being such like a, a mealy mouth party pooper a man who uh, abuses his power he doesn't need to act this way but he does and it's just so indicative of his own failed sense of self-esteem and all of that which having read this book is obviously not accurate to the real man there was probably other stuff going on there but it's definitely worth watching and i I'm glad we covered it for the show. He's always the best performance in like everything he does. He's just so good. Yeah, he he sells it, man. Dan, what were your thoughts? Bring us home. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing surprising in the objective here. I think they were trying to make a blockbuster at the time. Like you said, the book made the story popular, even though it was an old story. They wanted to use effects and real ships. They clearly put a lot of money into the budget to make it exciting. Use famous actors. Uh, yes, it might not be a star vehicle for one particular person, but clearly the names are carrying the production and bringing people to the theater. And they were trying to tell, I don't know, I think for the time, the most dramatized version of this story and kind of to hell with accuracy. I mean, yeah, I don't think this would make the top five most inaccurate films we've ever seen or anything like that. The main points are there but it's clear that they cared more about the dramatic impact of the scenes than about these historical figures reputations or what really happened and that's fine sometimes that's what you're doing right you're making a drama you know you're writing a screenplay and that is what it is so i think they were on target at the time it's definitely one of those that almost 90 years later has aged we talked about some of the editing some of the techniques the effects which again i give a lot of leeway for a lot of that stuff you have a mix of acting here some of it great some of it a little dated none of it bad like it's all interesting in one way or another when you consider it i don't know i hate that one guy I mean, but but is the actor doing a bad job at the acting i thought he did but you know, that's just me okay well it was on target for the time, maybe a little less so now. I specifically tried not to compare this to the other two modern versions, the other two talkies at least that were made, because I did that a lot in All Quiet for a very specific reason, and I think it was fine to let this film stand on its own. However, 
there are some things about the comparison that make certain things stick out in this. Now, we've talked about color versus black and white, and this is a film where films were traditionally just still being made in black and white. It's, it's right at the cusp of when they started making things in color. But it's like once you involve Tahiti and Tahitian outfits and the islands and ships and British uniform, all this stuff, once you see that in full color, it's a whole other world, and I do prefer that. So you go watch the 62 version, I believe it is, with Marlon Brando, it just opens up all these other doors in terms of your impression of the period and all that. Side note, and I sent you guys some of these images, Marlon Brando's outfits are just outrageous in that movie. (laughs) Because he decided to play Christian as a fop. And so before he's in naval uniform, he shows up on the ship with like two girls on his arms and he's just wearing this ridiculous outfit with like a crimson cape and this top hat. Oh my God. Then he gets in naval uniform and you're like, okay, fine. He's a fop, but he's like wearing a uniform like all the other officers. But then there's a scene where he's down below reading a book and smoking a pipe and he's in this, the most outrageous robe I've ever seen. That's like silver and red and all that. (laughs) Someone knocks on his room and he's like. And he turns around and they come in and I'm like, what the fuck is Marlon Brando wearing? It's just the costumes are amazing in that. He was starting to crack even then. Right. Oh, he was a shit show for that production for sure. I mean, I feel like there's probably not going to be a lot of times where we cover separate iterations of the same story because we have so many films to get through. But that's one where it might be worth a visit. It has a very different ending. They totally change history with the ending there. So that was interesting. And then when it comes to the 84 version, first of all, Vangelis did the soundtrack to Chariots of Fire, Gallipoli, Blade Runner, famously. Lots of synth. So it's interesting to see a story from the late 1700s naval with like a synth score. It definitely dates it for the 80s. But that film, what that film did for me more than anything, which I mentioned earlier, is Anthony Hopkins' performance and the way Bly is written in that way more human, way more empathetic. You know, the story's still the same. They still mutiny against him, but he's not this kind of one-note, baddie, villain authority. And I appreciated that a lot more, not just for the real history and for a little bit of grace to, like, the person who Bly really was, but it just works better, I found. Um, so I, I really love and appreciate Charles Lawton's performance here. But I think the writing does make it a bit too one-dimensional. With this guy just walking around on a, with a frown. And he just cannot fucking wait to inflict punishment on people to a ridiculous extent. So I thought that was a bit much for me personally. Did I like it? Yes. It's not my favorite version. I think if I really had to pick one... Although all three versions have interesting and good things about them, I would probably go with the 62. Honestly, it's the most entertaining and enthralling version of the story, I think. I don't think this was the best film of the three, but there are a lot of things that are really well done. It's 100% worth watching. The performances are great. There's also a couple of quick sea shanties in here. So I know our listener, Ben Curley, will be excited because he loves him some sea shanties. So... is my husband there you go and also there are several instances of hail britannia coming on here both (laughs) as a song and like kind of worked into the soundtrack a little bit 
And uh, for those who may have not noticed, we worked Liam singing Hail Britannia when he was trying to reference it in Dust Bow. I worked it into the theme, uh, our, our theme song for the show, Into Despo, and clearly I had to play it for this episode as well. And now we're moving on from our long, extended, and interrupted naval series, so that'll be that. But that was courtesy of uh, Liam. <laughs> You're so welcome. What are we doing next, Kitty? Next up, we're doing Iron Eagle, which is a 1986 film directed by Sidney J. Fury. Written by Kevin Allen Elders and Sidney J. Fury. This one won our listener poll, right? I believe so, yes. Nice. It stars Louis Gossett Jr., Jason Gedrick, and David Suchet. Ooh. I haven't seen this one. I don't think any of us have seen this one, right? No, but I like David Suchet as Poirot. Oh, and Tim Thomerson. Let's not forget Tim Thomerson. Okay, I don't know any of these people. I just know this came out the same year as Top Gun, and it definitely involves 1980s fighter jets so there's yes some similarity there it'll be interesting folks thanks for the votes audience this will be a fun one thank you guys all for tuning in and listening i hope you guys that are on our patreon enjoyed our willow episode which is the last one we put out which i had a blast editing that one that was a really fun episode we're still kind of running on a reduced schedule we're doing one Danger Close episode a month and one patron episode a month. We are going to come out of that eventually once we catch up with everything. So please continue to be patient with us. We are definitely keeping up the show, but we are still catching up on editing, etc. And we will see you guys on the next one. Bye. Bye. Hey, you know why you uh, preferred Bounty to the others? Because of Vangelis? No. It's because it's twice as absorbent as other leading national brands. Oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> Katie didn't even acknowledge your existence. I said, oh, like, my God. You didn't even exist. <laughs>